The World Encyclopedia says that in 1604, the French settlers off Maine observed the first American Christmas. What they mean in American speak is that the first Christmas happened in Canada. And that first Christmas was a disaster. But the second Christmas, now that was some good times. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard. The podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes with your host and author, Andrew McLean. In 1604, Samuel de Champlain arrived on the shores of what is now Canada to build the first settlement in North America. The 37-year-old navigator, who had spent much of his life traveling the world, was described as having a cheerful demeanor, vastly more open-minded towards the indigenous people that he met than most men of his time. He arrived in four ships from France, filled with people, tools, and livestock. The ships carried 120 people, including farmers, craftspeople, and nobles. Rather uncharacteristically for the time, and perhaps a testament to both Champlain's open-mindedness and his diplomatic skills, the colonists were a mix of Catholics and Protestants. While ordinary people of both religions got along, their respective Catholic priest and Protestant minister bickered incessantly. They traveled into the Bay of Fundy. They were particularly charmed by Port Royal in Nova Scotia, but sailed onwards, as far as the reversing falls on the mouth of the St. John River in what's now New Brunswick. After that, they doubled back and discovered St. Croix Island on the border of New Brunswick and Maine. It was close to bird colonies, which apparently were quite tasty. Just like pigeon, wrote Champlain. And it was also close to good fishing areas. The French quickly built a village that had a fort, wooden walls, one large building called the gallery, a warehouse, a big brick oven, a church, and a mill for grinding corn. The French had met up with local indigenous people, possibly from the nearby fortified Woolastook town and trading post of Meduktik, who, much to their surprise, greeted them like old friends. All seemed to be going well, until the Canadian winter hit. It was an unusually bad winter, and the snow started falling in late September. Champlain wrote, In summer, everything is very pleasant owing to the woods, the fair landscape, and the good fishing. But winter in this country lasts six months. The choice of the island was disastrous. There was not enough fresh water, and they had cut down all the trees already. They ended up shivering on a wind-blasted, desolate rock. The French colonists' relationship with the Woolastook people fell apart that winter too. The exact cause is unclear, but it appears that possibly the French had quote-unquote discovered a large amount of corn stored on the island and ate what was actually the Woolastook people's winter food stash. Understandably annoyed, the Woolastook stopped trading with the French until March. That winter, 35 of the colonists died of scurvy. The first Canadian Christmas had been a disaster. Come spring, the French promptly abandoned St. Croix Island, stripping their first colony of everything they could. The island has remained uninhabited ever since. 
the French returned across the Bay of Fundy to a promising place they had seen the year before, Port Royal, Nova Scotia. As they built a new city featuring the same buildings as last time, made from the same boards from building their last effort on St. Croix Island, but this time it had some interesting additions that were lacking before, such as ample gardens and a well-stocked artificial trout pond. This new settlement was joined by a ship carrying 40 new sailors from France, plus a whole bunch of much-needed supplies. Among them was a lawyer and a Latin historian named Marc Lescarbeau, who would write in detail about all of their experiences. Suddenly, and very unexpectedly, another French ship appeared, which wasn't supposed to be coming. As the small ship grew closer, the French noticed that it was decorated with totem poles, and its sailors were actually Mi'kmaq warriors. This was Member 2's ship. Member 2 was the Sagamaw, which means political leader or grand chief, of the Mi'kmaq, all of the Mi'kmaq people from Gaspé down to Cape Sable. He was also their Otmoin, or spiritual leader, and he was believed to have powers of healing and prophecy. It was rare for the same person to both be the Sagamaw and the Otmoin at the same time, and it was a symbol of just how widely revered and even feared Member 2 was. The Mi'kmaq claimed that Member 2 was 120 years old, but the rational, scientific-minded historian Marc Lescarbeau declared that that was impossible and that Member 2 was only a sprightly, youthful 110-year-old. Despite his age, Member 2's long hair and long beard were still completely black. It was unusual that he had a beard at all, as most Mi'kmaq were clean-shaven at the time. Despite his age, he was physically impressive, and he was so tall that he towered over the French and the Mi'kmaq alike. He was said to have been the finest warrior all the way from New York to Quebec when he was younger. 71 years before, he had greeted Jacques Cartier when he had arrived in Miramichi. Charismatic and intelligent, he was respected by both the Mi'kmaq and the French. Despite the eternally optimistic Samuel de Champlain respecting Member 2, he did not trust him at first. He was actually deeply suspicious of Member 2, saying that he had a quote-unquote reputation of being the most treacherous of anyone in his nation's history. Even Marc Lescarbeau, who had developed a fascination with Member 2 that kind of verged on obsession, reluctantly agreed that he shouldn't be trusted. It's unclear why the two Frenchmen were suspicious, but Member 2 driving around in a French ship likely did not help their unease. It was actually never explained how Member 2 got the French ship. The suspicion was mutual 71 years earlier, when the young Member 2 met Jacques Cartier. The meeting had not gone well. The famously arrogant Cartier had erected a cross on the beach, and the Mi'kmaq correctly guessed what the symbolism behind it meant. So they soon tore it down. Despite their mutual suspicion, Champlain's efforts to befriend Member 2 turned out to go fairly easily. The Mi'kmaq had a vision centuries before 
that blue-eyed peoples would one day come and change their lives forever. In the vision, there was an island floating towards their lands, and the island was decked out with tall trees on which there were living beings. As a result of the old prophecy, not only were the Mi'kmaq not the least bit surprised to see the French, but they were actually eager to begin trading with them to best take charge of their own destiny. In that second year, Port Royal it turned out to be somewhat warmer than St. Croix Island, and the French enjoyed a good summer of plentiful food. When winter came, it was once again harsh and early. Despite a good growing season and fertile soils, they simply did not have enough food stored and promptly ran out. It looked like the second winter was going to be just as brutal and disastrous as the first one had been. As things were becoming dire and bleak for the French, Member 2 and the Mi'kmaq brought them great amounts of food. They were savvy business people, however, and while they did generously give the French enough to not starve, if the French wanted more, they would have to trade for it at a fair price. Samuel de Champlain, meanwhile, was many things, but he was certainly not a doctor. He had decided that the scurvy which tore through his camp the previous winter was caused because the French settlers had not gotten enough entertainment. His solution was to found l'ordre de bon temps, or the order of good cheer. The first order of good cheer event took place that November the 14th, just as the night was falling quickly and the cold was becoming more biting. Marc Lescarbeau wrote and organized a comedic play called Le Théâtre de Neptune en la Nouvelle France, and it was the first play ever performed in North America. It was about a group of sailors crossing the Atlantic, encountering the Mi'kmaq, guided by the uncharacteristically friendly ancient Greek god Neptune. The play's theme song went, and I'm not going to sing this, If a man would wish to make his fortune, he must implore the help of Neptune. A lubber who doesn't quit his own house deserves no better a name than a louse. <laughs> the play was followed by a feast. The motto of the Order of Good Cheer was Fellowship and Good Times. It marked the beginning of a new nobility in Canada that explicitly flipped the old world's order on its head, even if it wasn't just a tongue-in-cheek way. The few nobles and the little colony were in charge of cooking for, and serving, everyone else. At the end of the feast, someone was presented with a crown, and was now in charge of providing for, and preparing, the next event. Everyone was members of this new nobility in the order Good Cheer. Men, women, children, Catholics, Protestants, white people, black people, and Mi'kmaq people. Wait, did I say black? Yes, there was one black man, Mathieu da Costa, who had come along and is the first recorded person of African heritage to live or even visit Canada. He spoke several languages, and as a result, he surprisingly quickly picked up the Mi'kmaq language and began acting as the very important interpreter between the two peoples. 
Member Two and his family, along with dozens upon dozens of Mi'kmaq of all ages and genders, came to the Order of Good Cheer celebrations. Together with the French, they prepared food, joined in the plays, put on performances, sang, drummed, smudged the French, and were knighted to become part of the order, truly as equals. For Christmas, historian Marc Lescarbeau took charge of the preparations himself and decorated the little town with wreaths and laurel. It was a mild day, and together the Mi'kmaq and French walked two leagues to where the cornfields were, now under a layer of snow. There they had a picnic with musical accompaniment. When they returned, Les Carbeau and his order of good cheer sous chefs had prepared a grand feast consisting of a mix of Mi'kmaq and French cuisine. The menu included mallard, ruffled grouse, venison of moose, deer, and caribou, beaver tail, which was a particular delicacy, otter, bear, rabbit, and even wildcat, sturgeon, and some other fresh fish. Most of this had been brought by the Mi'kmaq. The French served some special bread with the grain that had remained from France, and this was a particular hit amongst the Mi'kmaq. The bread was baked by a stonemason who had taken up cooking on the voyage and who ended up becoming kind of the colony's celebrity chef of sorts. Lescarbeau wrote, They lived as luxuriously as they could have in the street Aux Ours in Paris, and that was the famed center of French cuisine on that street, and at much less of a cost. He painfully reported, however, that they had run out of wine. It's not surprising, since each man had been drinking an astonishing three quarts of wine every day. That winter, an outbreak of disease did not happen. Two years later, though, a ship came from France telling the colonists that despite all of their hard work, due to financial problems, they had to come home. Before they departed, the French gave the keys to Port Royal to Member 2 and the Mi'kmaq. Member 2 would still be alive and the leader of the Mi'kmaq when the French returned years later. Marc Lescarbeau would go home to become something of a celebrity author in France after publishing his book about his experiences called L'Histoire de la Nouvelle France. Even today, some Mi'kmaq consider him the only early European who wrote fairly about him. Samuel de Champlain would never return to the Maritimes, something he would bitterly regret in his private diaries until the end of his life. He would, however, spend most of his life in Canada, found in the Quebec colonies that were part of New France. When he died decades later, he was called the best friend Canada ever had. That was another episode of Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Stay tuned for next week's episode for another hidden story that happened right in your own backyard. <laughs>